0: You can open your Bibles with me to John chapter 15, John chapter 15, Lord willing, we will be finishing John 15 this morning. Before we begin working through it, I, I guess at this time I would ask you if you're able to stand with me and we'll read our two verses together and then pray once again. Beginning of verse 26, Jesus says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Thank you. You may be seated. As you're being seated, I'll ask you to bow with me once again in prayer. Heavenly Father. O Lord, our God, we come to you now in great need. The task set before us now is quite impossible. Father, I thank you for the words from your son, which are set in front of us now. The promise that is given of one who will help. One who is God, the spirit to come and open understanding to lead us and guide us and bear witness to our souls of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would help us to see these things rightly and understand the great riches of your grace and blessing that we have in the third person of the Trinity. O God, I ask that you would guard me from error, that you would protect me from presumption. O Father, that you would close my mouth if I would speak wrongly. And yet, God, we are in great need for you to grant authority and liberty and conviction and urgency to say those things which must be said. Oh, Father, I pray that our experience now would be a fulfillment of the words of your son here, that we would be affected by the work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness as a man seeks to bear witness. O God, I ask that You would be glorified, that You would draw any lost among us to Yourself, and that the work of Your Holy Spirit would continue. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. (coughs) It just occurred to me, even in praying, how dependent we get on forms and traditions, even good traditions. I've shared with you all before How much I covet the time the music is played during the offertory hymn. The time where I like to sit and I'm cast thrust really desperately upon the Lord. My last chance to pray before I begin opening my mouth to you all. And alas, I did not get that here today. And even how it makes us uncomfortable whenever we're in situations that we're not used to. Because we come to depend on those things. Well, the title of this sermon today is Depend Upon the Spirit. Depend upon the Holy Spirit is the point. And the comfort that I have is that the Holy Spirit is not bound by our forms, by our traditions, even good ones. That He is able to break through and work and do impossible things with or without our traditions. So before we begin working through these two verses, I think in order for us to rightly appreciate these last two verses of John 15 and also in order that we would see that the, the primary thrust of thought even into John 16, we need to consider the context of what we've been hearing from Jesus. We've got to understand that these verses exist in the context that the disciples would have understood And it's important because we, even as they did, are facing the same kind of world and the same kind of opposition and the same impossible task that they were facing. So consider some of this leading into these statements here. Some of these verses we've looked at together all the way back in chapter 14 and verse 30. You recall Jesus told his disciples in verse 30 of John 14, I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. Now the first thing that we we remember is that the devil is at work in the world. Now, this all of this, we've taken months to go through these verses of Scripture, haven't we? Well, you have to realize these expressions are coming from Jesus in a single night. He's speaking to his disciples all at once here. And so it's not as though they've had a lengthy amount of time as you and I maybe have from the last time we heard Jesus say that. These words today are coming right on the heels of Jesus telling them that there is this ruler of this world. There is the devil who is coming and he's acting. Well, these disciples would have remembered those words. And Peter even seems to remember these very words of caution when he wrote his first epistle. First Peter chapter five and verse eight, Peter says, be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion. Seeking someone to devour. You see, the devil was actively working against God and would be working against these disciples. That's part of this context when Jesus tells them about this helper. The next thing to remember is from John chapter 15 and verse 19. We recently considered this. Jesus says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, But I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The second thing we remember is that our labors in evangelism, even as we see in the disciples here, are going to be opposed by the world. And if the unbelieving world has no problem with the message that we're bringing to it, then we're likely not delivering the one true and saving gospel. And so here, follow the thought. We're saying... These words are coming in light of this reality. There's a devil in the world. He's at work doing mischief. And the world itself is opposed to us. Hates us even, Jesus says. So not only are the disciples going to be actively opposed by the devil. They're going to be opposed by the world that hates them. And we are going to be as well. And then recently, even more recently, we saw in verses 24 and 25 of John 15... Jesus said, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. So the third thing for us to remember, which shapes the context of our verses today, is that Jesus himself had been hated and rejected. And so all the acts of mercy and all the proclamations Jesus made concerning salvation had not changed the hearts of those who were against him. So consider this. They go on to demonstrate the degree of the hatred they had for him by nailing him to a cross and crucifying and killing him. He's also been telling these disciples that He is going away, that He's no longer going to be with them physically. The question I ask is, what do you suppose is going through the mind of these disciples at this point? What are they thinking? And if we put all of these things together, we see the devil's against them, the world's going to hate them, the world's already rejected Jesus, Jesus is going away, and He's commissioned them to take a message to the very world that killed Him. Does that sound like a very hopeful endeavor a very hopeful thing to pursue the question I ask is how could these disciples hope to have any more success than Jesus had in light of these things there's something necessary that must happen that didn't even happen in Jesus own ministry that's expected of them how could they ever hope to accomplish that and the question I ask in the introduction is is our world any different today? Do we live in a different world than these disciples we're living in here? Sure, many things have changed. Technology has advanced, but the hearts of men are just as stony as they ever have been. There is no difference when it comes to that. The devil is still seeking to devour people and oppose God at every turn. The unbelieving world still hates God and hates those who would speak for God. And I submit to you that if Jesus Christ were to come into the world today as He did 2,000 years ago... The world would crucify Him again. That's the state of the society. That's the state of the world in which we live. How are we supposed to have any impact in light of this situation? You know, this, these things, these truths, are not, they're not lost on people. Even on bad preachers, I would, I would say. Even, even unbiblical preachers realize that it's impossible to reach this world If you just take this book and lift it up and set it in front of people. it's not going to reach anybody. That's why I believe some preachers and churches have resorted to gimmicks. To try to gain the attention of the unbelieving world. They appeal to the carnal desires of sinful people. Hoping to to draw them to God through things that aren't really biblical. Others... Downplay the hard truths of the scripture. They don't focus on things which are convicting and challenging and and, and uncomfortable to sit under. And they limit themselves to a superficial, redefined expression of God's love. We've heard about that as well in recent weeks. And then still others have developed such a man-centered, such a me-centered gospel that I suspect those who attend their churches, churches each week go home more likely to be worshiping themselves than they are to worship God. Now, I would submit to you this, that one thing that's evident in all of that is that those who employ these methods must be aware that it is impossible to reach the world by simply preaching Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It's impossible. I mean, you would have to be a stark raving lunatic to stand in front of men who hate God, who are being led by the devil, who are opposed to you, to stand in front of them and hope to reach them, to win them, by just telling them that a Jewish carpenter died on the cross in order to save them. You you think that that's going to have an impact on the dark hearts of evil men? It's not. Not in and of itself. Not alone. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly, to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The message message we've been given to proclaim is foolishness to the lost world, to the unbelieving world. It makes no sense whatsoever. And the task before these disciples and before ourselves is impossible. It's absolutely foolish and nonsense and cannot be done. It's a pretty encouraging sermon so far, isn't it? We've been given an impossible task that we cannot ever hope to accomplish. I'm reminded even of the words on the front of the bulletin by Steve Lawson. He says, unless the Holy Ghost blesses the word, we who preach the gospel are of all men most miserable. For we have attempted a task that is impossible. It is impossible what we've been called to do. And this context of these disciples looking at all of this negativity, all of this hatred of the world and the impossibility of what's in front of them. Can you just imagine them sitting there knowing the Lord's telling them he's about to leave and how on earth are we going to do this? It's no wonder that they scattered. Jesus told them, wait when the Holy Spirit comes, then you're going to have power. Then you're going to be my witnesses. You must wait for him. It's necessary that you have him shouldn't shock us at all to see, them, to see them scattering when He was crucified or to see them hiding out in an upper room. It is an impossible situation. And in light of those things, I believe our verses today come to us as much needed encouragements. And my prayer is that these words would hit us with the full force which He intended when He first spoke them. That we would see the significance of these things. And so with all of that, begin looking with me at verse 26 of John 15. He says, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. The first thing we see in this verse is the glorious word, but. In light of the desperate situation the disciples are in, they needed to hear a but. They needed to hear there's got to be something different than just the circumstances that you've been telling us about. If all it is is the world hates us and it hated you and it hated you without a cause, what hope have we? They needed to hear a but. They needed a redirection, an indication that there's some hope of overcoming these forces that are against them. The second thing we see is who the source of this blessed redirection and hope is. There's a but followed by when the helper comes. Who is the one who's going to bring about this glorious change, this but? It is the helper, God, the Spirit. And no one other than God can possibly overcome the obstacles that these disciples were facing. And none but God can overcome any of the challenges we face in our current situation, in our current climate and culture. You see, the very, there's a very similar expression to this found in Ephesians 2 concerning God acting in the midst of an utterly impossible and hopeless situation. In our context, the world is full of hate and opposition to God. You need someone to come and change that, to impact souls. But when the Helper comes... You see, there's an impossible situation, and God must act. That's the point. Well, Ephesians, just look briefly with me at Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, and we see the same exact thing, really. Looking back on what God has done in acting, Ephesians 2, read the first five verses with me. Paul says, And you were dead in trespasses and sins. Pause for a moment. Do you get any more impossible or hopeless than dead? You can't get any worse than dead, can you? There's dead in trespasses and sins. Hopeless, impossible, but continue reading. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience. Does that not sound like a perfect description of all we've been seeing about this hate-filled world in John 15? Those who hate Him, why? They're of the world. They have their own desires, they have their own source of satisfaction, and it's not God. They're led around by the devil, even as we're reading here in Ephesians 2. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Here's the situation. You're dead, you're damned, you're a child of wrath, but God. God did something. God acted in time upon you to change that. To make a difference in your life. That's what we're reading in John 15. Here's this horrifying situation. But when? The helper comes, but when God decides to act and we've gathered even here together today to worship the God of the impossible, the God of the impossible, he is the sovereign supernatural. He smashes to pieces any and every obstacle which opposes His purpose to save His people. There is nothing that will ever prevent God in the slightest from saving His people, including the stubbornness of your heart and will. God is able to break these things into nothing, but when the Helper comes. A similar expression that that really pictures for us and illustrates for us what we're driving at here is found in Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, the God of the impossible. We see in verses 23 through 26 this. This is following this rich young man who came to Jesus asking about eternal life. And the end of that sad story is that the man leaves in love with his possessions and loves his wealth more than Christ. And then we find in verse 23, and Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. The God of the impossible. It's impossible for a man to be saved, but not for God. That's what we're seeing. And I'm asking and wondering, do we realize how impossible it is for you to be saved? You, you think it's difficult to be saved? It's impossible. You can't be saved. It's impossible. Do you understand how impossible it is for anyone we share Christ with to be saved? This, this struck me very hard whenever Raina and I went to go and work and minister at the children's home in Oklahoma. I had a lot of ideals and a lot of thoughts about how I might be able to reach and impact people. And you go into a context where you're constantly surrounded by darkness, both in other staff and in children, evil surrounding you, darkness. And you come to realize there is no hope for these people apart from the power of God working in them. I can't cause them or force them to do anything myself. It's impossible. That's that's where these disciples are at here. And that's where we are today. It is unequivocally impossible for you. But wonderfully and certainly possible for God. But when the Helper comes. The next thing we read is whom I will send to you from the Father. The next thing we see is this blessed Helper is promised to be sent by Jesus. Whom I will send to you. The coming of and fulfillment of the Holy Spirit's coming is a promise of Jesus. This means that our access to the Holy Spirit is only possible by Jesus. Have you ever known people who are constantly going on, carrying on about religious, spiritual experiences? There are a lot of people in the world who desperately crave an experience of the Holy Spirit, but they never first come to Jesus Christ. They want to feel encouraged. They want the Spirit's power in their life. But they don't know Jesus. How ridiculous is that in light of what Jesus is saying? I will send Him. I'm the one who's going to send the Spirit. You see, there is no special power and even a terrible danger in using the name of Jesus in order to try to access the power of the Holy Spirit if you've never come to know Jesus personally. There's a a description that ought to send... Caution through your bones, found in Acts chapter 19, if you want to look there with me. This is what happens to people who try to get the power of the Holy Spirit without knowing Jesus themselves. Look at this in Acts chapter 19. Begin reading with me at verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, now that was a fascinating title, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaimed. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they all fled out of that house naked and wounded. you see the danger in trying to gain access of the Holy Spirit without ever knowing Jesus yourself? That you're going to claim some promise or blessing from God. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. That's the answer. And you must know Him personally. This Spirit that's promised is promised to be sent by Jesus. The next thing we read, and 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 I'm, I'm intentionally pausing on the next expression, who's sent from the Father. We're going to see that again in a moment. But the next thing we look at is it says, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, The next thing we're told of is the defining characteristic of this helper's ministry. He is described as the spirit of truth. How much false teaching would be dissolved immediately if people only understood that the Holy Spirit is committed to the truth? He's committed to that which is true. And I would suggest to those we mentioned in the introduction who will avoid hard truth in the name of reaching people, in order to try to connect with people, do you really expect the Spirit of Truth is going to empower a message that avoids truth? If you're avoiding... That's, the part, that's how He's even described by Jesus. He's the Spirit of Truth. He's the Minister of Truth. He's been sent to bring people to understand the truth about God. That people would come to know the greatness and glory of God and God's purpose and plan in saving His people. This Spirit's sent to enlighten people to the truth of their own condemned position outside of Christ. If what you're saying, or for that matter, what you're believing, and even what's going on in your mind, if what you're thinking is not according to the truth, it is not according to this Holy Spirit, to this Helper. He is the Spirit of truth. We could take an entire sermon to break down the significance of that thought. But let's press on together. The next statement we read. Who proceeds from the Father. So here's the impossible scenario. Unable, impossible to reach people. But when the Helper comes. Whom I will send to you from the Father, Jesus says. This Spirit who's of truth. Who proceeds from the Father. Now, this might seem like a needless repetition. Jesus has already said, whom I will send to you from the Father. Why does He repeat who proceeds from the Father here? Why does He say that? Since He's already told us. Why repeat this? Well, this statement comes to us as an emphatic declaration of the Spirit's purpose in coming. What do I mean by that? Not only was the Holy Spirit with the Father, just kind of hanging out there and close to Him, but He proceeds from the Father. This means that He has come to do the will and purpose of the Father. This one who comes from the Father has come forth to do the will of the Father. Even as the Son came forth to do the will of the Father. The work of the Holy Spirit. The needful work of the Holy Spirit is to do the will of the Father. And I ask what joy and hope should that give us in light of this impossible task? The task set in front of us to be witnesses and messengers of Jesus Christ. In a world that's unable to respond rightly to that message. What is so good about the fact that this Spirit proceeds from the Father? What is the purpose of the Father that the Holy Spirit has come to accomplish? Look with me back in the Gospel of John at chapter 6. Chapter 6, look with me at John 6. And I'd like to read with you verses 37 through 40. This is the one who proceeds from the Father. This Holy Spirit, this Helper. And what is he doing? Verse 37, Jesus says, all that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out for I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Do you see the significance of this? The significance is that the people in the world who are hating Jesus without a cause are not looking on the son. They're not believing on the son. They're not having eternal life. They're not coming to the son because they're not being drawn, at least not yet, by the father. The work of this one who proceeds from the Father is to guarantee that all that the Father has given to the Son will come to the Son. The work of the Spirit breaks through and utterly destroys those barriers that make it impossible for a man to come to God as he is. That is the purpose of His coming. And we see down in verse 44 of John 6, no one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. The drawing of the father is done by this Holy Spirit who proceeds from the father. The purpose of the spirit of truth who proceeds forth from the father is to draw those whom the father has chosen to save. and that which is impossible with men is possible for God How? By the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. And you say, well, what does that look like? What does it look like when the Holy Spirit draws someone to the Father? How is it that any person is ever going to be saved? What is the biblical teaching on how this helper does this work? The last part of verse 26 tells us he will bear witness about me. But when the Helper comes, who I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about Me. The last thing we notice is the particular truth which the Holy Spirit has come to convince men of. He will bear witness about Me. The essence of the Holy Spirit's work in the world is to testify of Jesus Christ. What's true of Jesus If people have it in their minds that the Spirit of God is going to be at work drawing a person to God with no reality of the person of Christ revealed in the Bible, that's a vain hope. His ministry is making known who Jesus is. Jesus is going on in chapter 16 to deal with the specific ways in which the Spirit will do this. But we can at least say for now, in the light of our context, the significance of this promise is what? What was it that caused the world to hate Jesus without a cause? Do you remember what we looked at the last time? Why did they hate him without a cause? Why were they wrong for hating Jesus? What causes men, women, and children to reject Jesus today? Why is it that people do not hear of Jesus Christ and say, My Lord and my God, I've come, save me. Why is there any person that doesn't respond that way? Why not? Well, as we saw the last time, Jesus' entire life and ministry, all that He said and all that He did was a testimony and a proclamation of God's mercy and willingness to say, if you recall, we saw Jesus said, if I had not come and spoken to them. And then He goes on, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did. Everything Jesus said and all that He did was a testimony of God's mercy on display to these people. And they hated Him. What is the Spirit? How does the Spirit change that? How does the Spirit come forth bearing witness about Jesus in order to change that? You see, the reason people hated Him without a cause, you remember that reference from Psalm 35? Those who were wrongfully my foes. Those who see me as a foe when they shouldn't. Those who saw Jesus coming into the world to condemn them and not knowing that He'd come to save them. They saw Him as their enemy, as their opponent, rather than a Savior and a friend. They saw His words in this way as shackles, as fetters to be cast off like those rulers in Psalm 2. Will not have Him to rule over us. Cast off His bonds and His cords. That's how they see Him. They no longer, if the Spirit draws a person, if He works in them, what's He doing? He's confronting this, that they don't see life and salvation. They hated Jesus because they hated God. And I'm telling you, we have a hopeful expectation of the power of the Holy Spirit doing this work. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is that He shows blind people the insanity of their blindness and unbelief. Is this not what happened to you when you were converted? All of a sudden, you began to see things about Jesus you'd never seen before. Even if in your mind you never thought, He's my enemy. All of a sudden... All of a sudden, when the Spirit bears witness of Jesus, you begin to see Him as He's come to save your soul. To deal with you in mercy. That's what you begin to see. The Holy Spirit shows people the truth of their utter bankruptcy without Christ. So that you come as the song sings, nothing in your hands. You're not bringing anything. He shows people their bondage and slavery to sin. He shows them the utter failure that they have and in their inability to save themselves. This is the ministry and work of the Holy Spirit. He bears witness about Jesus Christ in that people who formerly saw him as their enemy are made to see him as their savior and as their friend. They're made to see his message of salvation and redemption, and they no longer see Jesus coming to condemn them, to love them. And die for them. All of a sudden they're made to understand. What the scripture records in, John, or in Mark 10.45. For even as the son of man came not to be served. But to serve. And to give his life a ransom for many. Do you see the truth? Has the Holy Spirit borne witness to your soul? That Jesus has come to die for you. What is this? How has this come to pass? If the spirit does not do this work, men will remain separated from God. You will remain separated from God apart from the spirit's work. Anyone you share Christ with, they cannot respond. They will not respond unless this work happens by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has come to testify to the souls of men. And the primary message he has for them is this. What does the Holy Spirit tell you about Jesus? He is the Son of God. That He is the Savior of the world. We have a a very good description of the work of the Spirit found in Romans chapter 8. If you'll look there with me. Romans chapter 8. Begin reading with me at verse 12. And think about this. Again, in light of the scenario these disciples are in, the hopelessness that they could ever accomplish that which is set before them to do. And we're naive if we think that our situation is any better than theirs was. Verse 12 onward says, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Jesus says, this helper is going to bear witness of me. Do you see that? How is it that anyone can say, I'm a child of God? They cannot if they don't see Jesus Christ. If they're not in union with Jesus, they cannot say that. It's the spirit who bears witness about Jesus and testifies to our souls that we belong to God. The Holy Spirit has come in order to do for us what we cannot do. He has come to awaken the hearts and minds of people who cannot awaken themselves. And the question I ask is, how does he do this? How does the Holy Spirit do this work? Our last verse to consider together today is verse 27. He says, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So Jesus is saying there's this helper coming who's going to come and break through and he's going to witness, be a witness for me to accomplish this. How? How is he going to do it? He says, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. See, we're rejecting any hyper-Calvinism that says you don't go share the Gospel with people. Just because we're dependent on the Spirit of God does not mean we keep our mouths closed. God is pleased to use the proclamation from our mouths and accompany it by the Spirit in order to bear witness to people. Now these disciples here, these eyewitnesses, that's what he says. You've been with me from the beginning. These eyewitnesses were unique in the sense that none of us here today are eyewitnesses of Jesus. You're not an eyewitness of Jesus physically. No matter what you've seen in your mind's eye or your heart by faith, you haven't seen him physically. We were not there for His life and ministry on the earth as they were. And these disciples served a special role as those who would pen Scripture as His witnesses. But there does remain an application for us in this text as well. This verse is not to be understood in isolation from the previous one. In other words, it is not as though these disciples bearing witness of Jesus is to be seen as separate from the activity of the Spirit's witness. Do you follow me? Jesus is not saying, okay, the Spirit's going to do His thing over here and you guys are going to do your thing over here. These things go together. Perfectly so together. Especially whenever you come to think about how the Spirit Himself was bearing witness to these apostles as He inspired them in the writing of Scripture. That It's a joint labor. It's the Spirit at work in them and they're both bearing witness of this. Now, the principle which applies to us, which ought to fill us with hope and even a measure of confidence as we take the gospel to the world is that we can do so trusting and depending upon the mighty working of the Spirit of God in us as we go. This is depicted for us perfectly of God testifying, bearing witness through us according to the Spirit's power is shown for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. If you'll look there with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 This is what we read beginning in verse 1 Paul says, "And I, when I came to you brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling." And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. What Paul's saying: Our labors unto you. Paul's saying, as I opened my mouth to proclaim truth to you, it wasn't in my strength or power or my ability to convince you of my message. And think of this. What good would it do if I convinced any one of you to have faith in what I'm saying because of me? If your faith's in me, if I tell you something and your faith's in me, that's not going to do you any good. Paul's saying, so that your faith would not be in men. We don't want people's faith to rest in us. It's to be a glorious, glorious demonstration of the Holy Spirit's power to save, to change, and to turn the hearts of sinful men. It is only the power of God which can do this. And I say again, He is able. He is able. Paul's saying that what happened is the proclamation of Christ crucified was accompanied by the Holy Spirit. So here's the question we're left asking. How is it that a person is saved? How is it that people are converted? How is it that we see any one person come to know God? It's the Holy Spirit bearing witness to them. And if this does not happen, no one's going to be saved. How desperate, how dependent are we on the Spirit to do this work? How dependent are we as Christians for Him to remind us that this is true? If you are not being led by the Spirit of God, what do you feel? But a separation from God. You feel as though God no longer cares for you. You feel alone. But the Spirit of God reminds you what's true of you. And so I ask, what do these truths that we're considering now, what are they to be producing in us today, even here and now? Are we convinced of the desperate need in the world? Are you convinced... Is there anything you think that you can do to impact the world around you? Is there anything within your grasp that you think if I could only say this or do that, then they would believe? The answer is no, they wouldn't. No, they wouldn't. They need this power. This alone. It's impossible for us, but not with God. I ask, are we convinced of the desperate need of nice, polite, religious, lost people even in this town? What do they need? People who are probably more faithful than some of us in their church attendance and yet they've never come to know God. What do they need? The need is that their hearts would be pricked by the Holy Spirit. That this powerful helper would run them through with the sword of God's Word. That they would see Jesus Christ as they've never seen Him before. That's what happened on Pentecost. All these hateful people who said away with Him, crucify Him. This Holy Spirit bore witness to them in a moment. And he cut them through. He pricked them in the heart. And all of a sudden they cry out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? How are we going to escape in light of what we've done? That's the Spirit's work. He did that. And apart from him doing that today, even as he did it then, no one will be saved. Not a single one. That's what's needed. Do I even need to ask, What's your need? If you are one who's here today who does not know Christ this way. Has your mind and heart been stirred today? If you're left saying, well, there's nothing I can do because you're telling me God's got to do it. So I'm just going to not worry about it. You're evidencing your lack of understanding even now. But if you've been compelled by this message to realize you need one who's mightier than yourself if you've come to see this Jesus Christ as a Savior and as a friend, not an enemy, if you have, it's because of the quickening power of this Holy Spirit. He is. And I say with all authority, if you've come to see Jesus in this way and to know Him according to this Word and to love Him, I say on the authority of Scripture, the Holy Spirit is drawing you according to the purpose of the Father. He's drawing you. Come to him and live. repent, believe this gospel message that your soul would rest in the power of what God alone can do, of what God alone has done, and what has he done? What is the primary truth that this Holy Spirit bears witness about concerning Jesus Christ? He died that he came. To suffer and die under the wrath of his father in the place of sinners who saw him as their enemy. Those who said, give us Barabbas away with this Jesus. Let him be crucified. We don't want him. Let him be damned. We don't want him. He says, I'm going to die for them in their place. That's what the Holy Spirit bears witness to you about. That's how you can say, Abba, Father, because the Father poured his wrath out on his only son that you and I might be called sons and daughters of the living God. That's what this spirit has come to do. That's what Jesus is promising. And nothing less than that can be our hope. We are dependent upon him in every way. It is the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, which informs us of the very thing we're going to observe together in a moment. This remembrance of what He has done. If you have not come to trust in Jesus Christ, I believe God is pleased to answer the prayers of His people when they ask Him for mercy. Ask Him. Cry out to Him. Realize your need. And by all means, I ask you as a church, just a closing thought, would you be diligent in your prayers for me as I labor to preach this message? To do this thing that I cannot do week by week, Sunday by Sunday, to proclaim a message that I have no ability to bring home to the hearts of even anyone here. Pray that God would bless his word as it goes forth and demonstrate his power to us that, I'll ask you now to bow with me and we'll close this time of prayer. Heavenly Father. Oh Lord, I thank you that your power to save is unhindered by anything. That the spirit of God, that he is mighty and that he has been sent into the world to bear witness of your son, that we may know you and the forgiveness of sin. And be reconciled to you. Oh God I ask that you would continue working in our hearts. That we would rejoice to know and believe and proclaim these things. And that we would have confidence in him as we do. Oh Father. Please bless our time now as we gather together around your table. In remembrance of all that you have done for us. In Jesus name. Amen.